Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted November 25, 2016, we talk with Indiana University historian Rebecca Spang about the social and political history of money and its connection to current economic inequality. Her article in the new WPJ Fall issue is headlined, The Currency of History, Money and the Idea of Progress. We'll also point out other top features in that new fall issue, cover theme, History's Ghosts. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. John Kander and Fred Ebb's musical Cabaret sidestepped the dry historical, financial, technological view of money from wampum beads and gold coins, credit cards and bitcoins to cell phone touch and pay apps. So, in a more serious way, does Indiana University history professor and faculty president Rebecca Spang. In the new fall issue of World Policy Journal, she argues that traditional analysis obscures the monetary inequality that exists today because money is as much a social and political fact as it is an economic one. Her article is headlined, The Currency of History, Money and the Idea of Progress, and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Uh, Professor Spang, welcome to World Policy on Air. Hello. Thank you very much. History's Ghosts is the cover theme of the new WPJ Fall issue. You write that ghosts, history, and money are more connected than common sense might initially suggest. What are the similarities you see? Well, a very obvious similarity um, is that a ghost is something that connects us to the past. So, too, does money. Um, Ghosts keep the past alive, and money is a way that we continue to derive value from transactions that happened six, ten, two hundred years ago. Ghosts are aspects of history that should have faded away but don't. Money, you write, we expect to remain constant, but it does not. Say more about that. So we expect money to remain constant. We think that if we put a thousand dollars in the bank today will have a thousand dollars a year from now but a moment's thought we realize that with high inflation our thousand dollars might be worth only 800 or 200 in the future moreover there are of course major shifts um, in how money is issued uh, by whom it's accepted Think about people uh, who believed in Confederate dollars in 1861 and then could buy nothing with those dollars in 1865. Money has a history, and it's a political history as much as, as it is an economic one. In fact, you say the idea that money does not have its own complicated past is one of modern thought's most tenacious false notions. Uh, You say it prevents us from finding a better future. How so and with what connection to the theories of Enlightenment philosopher John Locke? Well, I think what's important to remember um, is that there's a real tendency among historians and especially economists when they write about money 
to treat it as something unchanging. Money has quantity. It is a measure of quantity, but it has no qualities of its own, nothing that makes it historically specific. Um, this is an incredibly tenacious idea. Um, you mentioned John Locke, um, and in uh, Locke's writings from the late 17th century, which are crucial for our modern understanding of, uh, of property and of the individual, Locke assumed or argued that uh, God gave the entire planet to humanity as a species, but that private property was nonetheless legitimate and legal because we made the earth our own through labor. So Locke is a labor theory of value. Locke then built on that to say, so I've been doing all this labor on this land, and I've grown um, all these uh, peas, and I've grown some cherries. And these are the really valuable things that help people stay alive. But the problem is that the things that are of real value for human beings, so you know, milk, peas, cherries, pears, they don't last very long. So what had to happen, Locke says, is that humanity agreed to um, measure the value of those valuable but perishable things with something that had no value of its own but did not perish. And that thing that has no value but lasts forever, he said, was money. Um, and he said that because to his mind, the ideal money was a durable substance like gold or silver. Of course, one of the reasons why human beings value gold and silver is because they're actually very malleable metals. It doesn't take a lot of effort to melt down a silver coin. Um, and if you know anything about metalworking, you can easily remake it into lots of other things. Of course, uh, they're also a bit, a bit rare. You don't find them anywhere in the street, so they had some rarity as well. Nearly two centuries later, you note a similarity in the work of economist William Stanley Jevons, if I'm pronouncing it right. Tell yes. us about what he's noted for and about his funny tale of a French singer on tour in the South Pacific, how that reflects a continuing limited view of monetary matters. Right. William Stanley uh, Jevons is generally considered to be um, the key figure in the emergence of modern economics. His name is associated with the so-called marginal revolution. And something else that many people know about Jevons uh, is that he's one of the earliest theorists um, that sunspots might somehow affect human activity. Um, hmm. The story you refer to um, is from the beginning of his little book, uh, very frequently reprinted on money and mechanisms of exchange. And in it, he tells a story about a French opera singer who's doing a around-the-world tour and this is in the 1850s, so by this point you really can go around the world, though it might take 18 months to do it. And she's in the South Pacific, and she performs, oh, I don't know, like in Tahiti or something. Um, and they pay her uh, in you know, the receipts for the, for the show, which consists of, quote, three pigs, 23 turkeys, 44 chickens, 5,000 coconuts, and some considerable quantities of bananas, lemons, and oranges. <laughs> now, <laughs> right, uh, yeah, 
Okay, it's November. We could all use 23 turkeys, right? Um, so uh, the moral that Jevons takes from this is that in primitive, quote-unquote, contexts like the South Pacific, uh, people have not advanced, quote-unquote, uh, to having durable uh, media of exchange like gold or silver coins. Instead, they're still basically dealing with a barter economy. Um, you sing me a song, I'll give you a turkey. Um, and Jevons points out that this is simply inconvenient, that the opera singer had no particular way of taking 5,000 coconuts with her, um, and she couldn't exchange them on the island for any more portable uh, means of payment. So basically she sacrifices her payment um, in order to continue her tour. Rather than see history of monetary progress uh, from uh, pigs and coconuts to coins, cash, and credit cards, you propose that economies might better be understood as internally multiple. What does that mean? How does the situation in 18th century France that you've studied reflect it? So when I talk about an economy as internally multiple, the point I want to make is crucially different people have different money. It's not just that we have different quantities of it. It's that we have different qualities. Um, this is very obvious in the context of 18th century France, and it's actually something that people in 18th century France were conscious of and thought was perfectly normal, because theirs was a society of orders, a society based on the assumption that different people have a fundamentally different place in society. So in that culture, it made perfect sense that uh, the monarchy and its bureaucracy uh, might do most of its business on credit, because after all, what could be more credible than the kings of France? Uh, it was a society in which international merchants do much of their business with bills of exchange, um, a, a form of commercial credit somewhat similar to a check, as we understand them today. Um, it's a society in which uh, some high-end purchases do have to be made with silver or gold coins, and the crucial place where you really need coins is in paying your taxes. Um, but it's also a society in which 80% of the population, ordinary working people, poor people, They've never seen any of this paper that circulates at the upper end of the economy, and they don't usually see gold. They may sometimes see silver, but mainly what they have is copper coins. And so what's called the money of the poor is understood as being a very specific category, a kind of currency that you have to make sure there's enough of in circulation. So this is a society that recognizes that different people have different money. Um, that's a recognition that in many ways we've lost today and that I think makes it difficult to really understand the dynamics of social, economic, political interaction. Well, talk more about the uh, the way that that situation, 18th century France, uh, resembles today's world. Well, um, so when I say today that different people have different money, think about it for a minute. 
you and I, I certainly make most of my transactions with a credit card or a debit card. Um, I might pay cash for a very small transaction, or uh, sometimes, especially in smaller places, you can still get, say, taxis that will only take cash. But most of what I do is debit or credit. Now, imagine being a homeless person who only took debit or credit cards. It doesn't work. It doesn't happen. You cannot be a homeless person and make most of your transactions with debit and credit. Or one of my favorite examples, and everybody always immediately recognizes the sense of this, imagine trying to pay for a plane ticket with cash. It is still legally possible. However, um, there is such a strong prejudice against it um, because some of the 9-11 terrorists did buy their tickets with cash, so it was untraceable. There is such a strong prejudice against it that as soon as you try to buy a plane ticket with cash, it immediately triggers all sorts of security alerts. Um, so I have occasionally, I mean, I remember once, maybe five, six years ago, saw somebody at an airline ticket desk in an airport trying to pay cash, um, and he was not going anywhere anytime soon. This leads you to a discussion of the unbanked and the underbanked in the U.S. today and how they've been impacted by deregulation of the banking sector. Talk about that. Yes. Um, This is something, again, that I suspect middle-class people such as ourselves don't tend to think about very often. Um, But one out of 13 households in the United States, so approximately 9.6 million households, has no bank account. No bank account at all. That means, obviously, no debit card. Um, And then there's another nearly 25 million households who are classified as underbanked. So households that might have um, a deposit bank account, but perhaps they don't have access to uh, checks or they don't have a debit card. Um, So this is a sizable percentage of the population, close to 35 million households, not individuals, who really are not part of the same monetary circuits as are the people who have easy access to credit and debit. And this population, the unbanked and underbanked population of the United States, is disproportionately non-white. We're talking about nearly half of Hispanic and African-American households that are in these categories. Talk more about how government policy can affect uh, financial exclusion today and how the system in Canada provides a a positive example. Well, um, uh, what we need to think about is the way in which the deregulation of the banking sector, uh, which starts in the 1980s under Reagan, accelerates in the 1990s, uh, means that there's very little sense of uh, banks as institutions with any sort of social responsibility. Think about the bank um, that Jimmy Stewart's character operates in It's a Wonderful Life. (laughs) That's a model of a bank as a community institution that's 
part of its place and that is there to benefit the community. Um, there's absolutely no obligation for banks to function that way today. Banks exist to make money, and they don't make or they can make a lot of money off uh, poorer households by charging exorbitant fees for, say, having an account with a balance under $5,000, say. Um, but because those fees are so exorbitant, those households then choose not to have a bank account. And having chosen not to have a bank account, they're then shut out of many parts of the mainstream economy. Um, can Canada, however, Canadian law, um, since 2003, all banks are required um, to open low-cost low accounts for every Canadian citizen um, and actually many classes of non-citizens. Uh, there's no income requirement, no residency requirement, and no minimum balance requirement. And what does that permit? What that permits is it means that you can have a bank account and access to banking services even if, say, you've only got 50 cents in the bank account. <laughs> it means um, that instead of having to operate through payday lenders, through basically you know the 21st century version of loan sharks, people who are going to cha charge people and firms who charge 20, 30, 40% interest on a weekly basis. Instead, you've got an institution whose job it is to you know, allow you to cash a check. Um, so it basically facilitates um, the involvement of nearly the entire population of Canada. I think the underbanked and unbanked population in Canada is somewhere between 3 and 4%. You touched on this uh, briefly before, but our sense of money is merely an outgrowth of economic and technological development also obscures what you see as an important distinction between publicly and privately issued money. Uh, talk about their divergent histories and uses, both coins and paper. Yeah, well, I think this is important to keep in mind so, because so often the history of money is narrated as a tale of uh, technological progress. Um, you know, once upon a time we had turkeys and pigs, and <laughs> then we had coins, and then we had paper, and now we have virtual money, and then we're going to have Bitcoin. Um, the difference, crucially, um, is that these different objects derive their legitimacy as currency from different categories of issuers. Uh, so, you know, in the fantasy of what life was like with barter, um, there is no central issuer of uh, pigs, turkeys, and coconuts, right? I mean, I have a coconut, you have a pig, we exchange them. Then, however, uh, if you think about what gives legitimacy certainly to the currencies with which we are familiar you know, over the course of the past 150, 200 years, most of their legitimacy derives from having been government-issued. We expect money to have some sort of uh, institutional basis in a polity. Either, in many cases, it's a national money, 
or in the case of, say, the euro, it's a supranational money. Um, so then you might think, okay, well, you know, that's fine, and then there's just going to be this technological shift to having virtual money. The difference and something that I think many people often don't understand when they get baffled by the technology of the blockchain and Bitcoin, is that re the reason why there's so much enthusiasm in a certain part of the world for Bitcoin is that it's privately issued. It is not state-backed. It is the fantasy of being able to access a form of wealth outside the purview of state and government institutions. And do you feel that without any uh, definable backing that this can truly work effectively in the long run? Um, I think that it's not so much a question about backing. It's about um, the extent to which Bitcoin's appeal is that it keeps transactions hidden. The key issue with Bitcoin isn't that it's a different technology, but that it's an effort to return to private issue of money. And if it's privately issued, it's a cryptocurrency, meaning that it's both encrypted, you can't see the transactions, but also that nobody else can see. Um, that, that security makes it so that nobody else can see what those transactions have been. That's going to make it increasingly difficult, if not impossible, for a public entity like the state, the government, to collect taxes. Um, and without that tax revenue, obviously, the things that public money is spent on, building roads, building schools, paying soldiers, that's going to become more difficult to do. So I have no problem with the idea of moving to a purely so-called virtual money, except we have to figure out a way that the poor and the unbanked will have access to it. I have no problem with moving to a virtual money, but it has to be publicly issued, um, a virtual money uh, issued by, say, the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve is a very different thing from Bitcoin. I was interested, though, that, that the privately issued money has a, an earlier incarnation in what you would refer to as bills of exchange, I mean, between private companies that could be used yes. by a certain class of people uh, privately issued uh, that the state might or might not ever know about. Yes, that's true. That's certainly very true. Um, and there's, you know, I mean, there is a way in which... Uh, Bonds issued by uh, entities and corporations today, insofar as those bonds are accepted as payment by other companies, function in a somewhat similar fashion. So it's true um, that uh, there are many, as I said earlier, there are actually many different uh, monies being used by many different individuals and entities today. So again, the economy is multiple.
And so the, the technology gap uh, really is quite and, and will be increasingly connected to the uh, economic gap, that is people who don't have access to technology, to the internet, uh, will be disadvantaged as are people who because of their lack of wealth don't have access to uh, credit cards and, uh, and, other, and, and similar forms of payment. That's right. That's right. Um, I mean, there are some interesting developments that show that this doesn't have to be the case. Uh, mobile money, so uh, money that is you know, basically tracked via your cell phone, is extremely important in many parts of Africa today. Uh, so that's a way in which we can think about uh, using technology to um, – I was going to say enfranchise, but I guess what I really mean is embank uh, people <laughs> who didn't <laughs> didn't have access earlier. Um, but there need to be uh, policy choices made in that direction, simply leaving it open to the workings of some sort of unfettered market um, is not likely to lead to involving more people. Professor Spang, thank you. Thank you. Rebecca L. Spang is a professor of history and faculty president at Indiana University and author of Stuff and Money in the Time of the French Revolution, last year from Harvard University Press. Her article for the new fall issue of World Policy Journal is headlined, The Currency of History, Money and the Idea of Progress. Also featured in the new WPJ Fall issue, History's Ghosts, you'll find articles on what lessons from history keep being forgotten, on silencing the echoes of Tiananmen, and on the painful legacy of Canada's residential Indian schools. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>